The title of this morning's message, Merry Christmas, from Proverbs chapter 15, verses 13 through 15. Read with me therein. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. Perhaps more so than any Christmas in recent history, this Christmas is surrounded by darkness. This Christmas is surrounded by things that would steal merriment away and not be a source of merriment. And so Proverbs fifteen thirteen through 15 gives us instruction of our Lord that our Christmas merriment might be full, that we might indeed have a merry Christmas this coming week and a merry Christmas every day of our lives and for all of eternity as we feast on Christ in faith. Merry Christmas, dear saints. Let us unpack this text together. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. And that's universally true. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. Now, we as Christians, above all, have reason to be merry. We as Christians, above all, have reason to be joyful, have a merry heart. You don't hear the word merry much in modern English. You hear it around Christmas, and that's about it, which is why Merry Christmas stands out. And I love to hear people say, Merry Christmas, and it should be on our lips, saints. Merry Christmas. Now, not just as an act of rebellion against an atheistic culture, but as an act of worship, as an act of faith, as joy flowing from our Christian hearts. We should wish believer and non-believer alike Merry Christmas. For the reality is without Christmas, without the incarnation of the Son of God, without the enfleshment of God, without the first advent of Christ, there is no cause truly There is no justification, rightly, for any merriment at all, for any joy at all. And so all true merriment, all true joy flows from that glorious reality that the love of God came down, that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the eternal source of merriment. And we as Christians know that source. We as Christians know that victory. We as Christians know that life and that life abundant that Christ came and won for us at the cross and the empty tomb where he overcame death as the first fruits on behalf of all those who would follow. So a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. And we, by the grace of God, can feast upon Christ. We, by the grace of God, can feast upon all the glory of Christ, who He is, what He has accomplished, what He will yet accomplish on our behalf. So a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. Now, there are others that are merry outside of Christ. I've met merry Buddhists and merry Muslims. I've met merry atheists. The problem is, is their merriment will come to a sudden halt. Their merriment is not based in reality. Their merriment is based in many ways by the suppression of truth and unrighteousness. 
it will come to a sudden end. And so we have the good news of true merriment. We have the good news of true and abiding eternal joy. We have the good news of Jesus Christ and Christmas. We of all people should wish a merry Christmas to our neighbors and do so heartily and joyfully and sincerely and unpack the source thereof for them and warn them that their merriment will come to an end outside of Christ. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. There is much in the world that would tend towards sorrowness. There is much fallenness. There is much sorrow. There is much heartache. There is death in a sin-affected world. The wage of sin is death. That's a terrible reality. But in Christ, there is life and there is victory. And that is a source of eternal merriment, eternal joyous reality. And that's our reality. And our mission is to spread that reality. Our mission is to spread that joy. Our mission is to spread that merriment. And so we don't suppress the truth and unrighteousness that there is sin and suffering in this world. No, but we have victory in Jesus. We have joy in Jesus. We have merriment in Jesus that overcomes the world. It overcomes our current circumstances, saints. It does. Don't let current circumstances overcome eternal joy and merriment in Jesus Christ, whatever our circumstances are. Verse 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. The heart of him who has understanding, understanding in God, understanding in Christ, understanding in sin, righteousness, and judgment, understanding in the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, seated now at the right hand of God the Father, as the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. These eternal realities, these spiritual realities, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, real knowledge. And we are the people of knowledge. We are the people of knowledge because we know the God of all knowledge, the God who knows all things. And because we know the God who knows all things and he's revealed some things to us, we can know things. We are the people of truth, the people of knowledge. By the grace of God, let us live as such. The people who know the God of all truth, let us walk in that truth. Let us walk in the light of the truth. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Our heart is in it. We, we seek it. But the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Foolishness is everywhere. It abounds in media. It abounds in movies. It abounds in music. It abounds in television shows. It abounds in social media. It abounds on billboards. It abounds in magazine covers. It abounds in conversations you might be involved in. You might overhear. It abounds in comedy. Foolishness abounds everywhere. You're exposed to it constantly. And all that is contrary to God's truth is foolishness. And often we find merriment and foolishness. We find some level of joy and foolishness, but it's not true joy. It's not abiding joy. It's not eternal joy. It's not what God has for us as believers, as Christians. It is not the source of our merry Christmas. And by all means, I rejoice in the lights. I rejoice in the greenery. I rejoice in the red. I rejoice in the songs. And I've confessed, I rejoice not just in the Christmas hymns, the Christmas hymns above all else. And I love to hear them publicly played and sung. 
But I rejoice in all of the bright and cheerful spirit, heart, songs, colors, all of it that surrounds Christmas. And yet all that is not connected to the actual truth of God and the truth of Christ will leave us wanting at the end, leave us wanting in our final day, in the final hour, in the final assessment. And the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. That's all they want. They only want the glitter. They only want the lights. They only want the greenery. They only want the dashes of red. They only want the silly songs or worse. We as believers, we as Christians born again from above, want the heart of Christmas, who is Christ. And we want the heart of Christmas, who is Christ, at all times. We want Christ. We want to abide in Christ. We want to build our lives on the rock, who is Christ, and live our lives for His glory and His honor and His mission, that we one day would hear from Him, well done, good and faithful, doulos, slave, blood-bought one. And so the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And it's not that some are afflicted and some have good times perpetually and therefore they're merry. The idea of Scripture and the biblical reality is there will be afflictions for all of us. Afflictions are various, mind you, but there will be afflictions for all of us. We will all suffer in this world. And we, of all people, have suffered comparatively little compared to those who have come before us and compared to those who are living outside of this United States of America. We need to count our blessings. That aside, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he was of a merry heart despite afflictions and despite the evils of this world. He was of a merry heart as a continual feast. And with that merry heart, Mary in God, Mary in Christ, Mary in the Incarnation, Mary in Christmas, that love came down. With that merry heart, we have a continual feast, feasting upon Christ, feasting upon victory over sin and death, feasting upon adoption as children of God forever into the family of God, feasting on that reality, feasting on the goodness of God, even as we saw in Sunday school in our study there, the goodness of God, His goodness endureth forever, feasting upon God and the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the revelation of God. That is a basic exposition of Proverbs fifteen thirteen through 15. Let us feast upon Christ at Christmas and all year long. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness and is never truly satisfied, never truly satiated, always wanting. He who has true Christmas understanding, true gospel understanding, true biblical understanding, has a continual feast at heaven's banquet table in Christ and of Christ. From time to time, in good conservative Christian circles, there are bah humbug Christian killjoys, I like to call them, in love who rise up to crush your Christmas joy, saying, Charles Spurgeon didn't celebrate Christmas. You say, Merry Christmas! And some of these dear brothers and sisters will rise up, and their Bible, oddly enough, is always a little bigger than yours, and they'll seek to crush your Christmas merriment, your Christmas joy beneath it. 
But I want to encourage you, let not your heart be troubled. Like many faithful men in his day, Charles Spurgeon had reservations about the celebration of Christmas. They lived closer in proximity to the Reformation by date than we do today. Spurgeon's sermons regarding Christmas reflect his genuine concern for the gospel and the purity of the church. Nevertheless, his December 24th, Christmas Eve, sermon of 1854, titled The Birth of Christ, says this, Charles Spurgeon, Now a happy Christmas to you all. So whenever anyone says to you, Spurgeon hated Christmas, Spurgeon condemned Christmas, you just quote to them, Now a happy Christmas to you all. Quote, unquote, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But he said more. Now a happy Christmas to you all. And it will be a happy Christmas if you have God with you. I shall say nothing today against festivities on this great birthday of Christ. We will tomorrow think of Christ's birthday. We shall be obliged to do it, I am sure. However sturdily we may hold to our rough Puritanism, and so let us keep the feast and not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Do not feast as if you wished to keep the festival of Bacchus. Do not live tomorrow as if you adored some heathen divinity. Feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast. Go to the house of feasting tomorrow. Celebrate your Savior's birth. Do not be ashamed to be glad. You have a right to be happy. Solomon says, Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. For God now accepteth thy works. Let thy garments be always white, and let thy head lack no ointment. Religion never was designed to make your pleasure less. Recollect that your master ate butter and honey. Go your way, rejoice tomorrow, but in your feasting, think of the man in Bethlehem. Let him have place in your hearts. Give him the glory. Think of the virgin who conceived him, but think most of all of the man born, the child given. I finish again by saying, a happy Christmas to you all. Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Marked by some as not so Puritan as to fail to wish a happy Christmas to you all. Perhaps the greatest evangelist in the history of America, George Whitfield, said this of Christmas, The celebration of the birth of Christ hath been esteemed a duty by most who profess Christianity. When we consider the condescension and love of the Lord Jesus Christ in submitting to be born of a virgin, a poor, sinful creature, and especially as he knew how he was to be treated in this world, that he was to be despised, scoffed at, and at last to die a painful, shameful death, that he should be treated as though he was the off-scouring of all mankind, used not like the Son of Man, and therefore not at all like the Son of God. The consideration of these things should make us to admire the love of the Lord Jesus, who was so willing to offer himself as a ransom for the sins of the people that when the fullness of time was come, Christ came, made of a woman, made under the law. He came according to the eternal counsel of the Father. He came not in glory or splendor, not like him who brought all salvation with him. No, he was born in a stable and laid in a manger. Oxen were his companions. You understand, we set up those neat little sets in our homes and we think how cute they are. It would not be so cute to your bride. 
should you lead her to a stable to give birth to her firstborn and lay her firstborn, who is the Lord of glory in a manger? Oh, amazing condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ to stoop to such low and poor things for our sake. What love is this? What great and wonderful love was here that the Son of God should come down into our world so mean a condition to deliver us from the sin and misery in which we were involved by our fall and our first parents. And as all that proceeded from the springs must be muddy because the fountain was so, the Lord Jesus Christ came to take our natures upon Him to die a shameful, a painful, and a curse death for our sakes. He died for our sins. And to bring us to God, He cleansed us by His blood from the guilt of sin. He satisfied for our imperfections. And now, my brethren, we have access unto Him with boldness. He is a mediator between us and His offended Father. Therefore, if we do but consider into what state and how great a distance from God we are fallen, how vile our natures were, what a depravity, and how incapable to restore that image of God to our souls, which we lost in our first parents. When I consider these things, my brethren, and that the Lord Jesus Christ came to restore us that favor with God which we had lost, and that Christ not only came down with an intent to do it, but actually accomplished all that was in his heart towards us, that he raised and brought us into favor with God, that we might find kindness and mercy in his sight. Surely this calls for some return of thanks on our part to our Redeemer for this love and kindness to our souls. How just would it have been of him to have left us in that deplorable state wherein we, by our guilt, had involved ourselves. For God could not nor can receive any additional good by our salvation. But it was love, mere love. It was free love that brought the Lord Jesus Christ into our world about 1,700 years ago. This was written about 320 years ago. What shall we not remember? The birth of our Lord Jesus? Shall we yearly celebrate the birth of our temporal king, the earthly king? And shall that of the king of kings be quite forgotten? Shall that only which ought to be had chiefly in our remembrance be quite forgotten? God forbid. No, my dear brethren, let us celebrate and keep this festival of our church with joy in our hearts. Let the birth of a Redeemer, which redeemed us from sin, from wrath, from death, from hell, be always remembered. May this Savior's love never be forgotten, but may we sing forth all His love and glory as long as life shall last here and through an endless eternity in the world above. May we chant forth the wonders of redeeming love and the riches of free grace amidst the angels and archangels, cherubim and seraphim, without intermission, forever and ever. And as my brethren, the time for keeping this festival is approaching, let us consider our duty and the true observation thereof of the right way for the glory of God and the good of immortal souls to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, an event which ought to be had in eternal remembrance. And so praise God, the saints that came before us celebrated the birth of the Lord Jesus and the grace of God manifest in it heartily, Spurgeon and Whitfield included. End of introduction. First point, Merry Christmas to believers. Merry Christmas to believers. Now we've already unpacked this a bit from Proverbs 15, 13 through 15, but we'll go further. Merry Christmas to believers, dear victorious believer upon Jesus Christ and genuine celebrant of Christmas. I wish you a Merry Christmas. 
If Christ is your Lord, your King, and your Savior, you are a victorious believer upon Jesus Christ. We don't always feel the full weight of that victory, but we are victorious believers upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are the sincere celebrants of Christmas, the genuine celebrants of Christmas. And I sincerely wish each one of you a Merry Christmas. Again, Proverbs 15, 13 through 15, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. Believers, we feast on Christmas prophecy. As verse 14 of Proverbs 15 says, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. We seek knowledge of this Christ child. We seek knowledge of this thing that we call Christmas, and we find it first in Christmas prophecy. And there's not time to unpack all Christmas prophecy. That would be weeks, months of study. But let us look at a few central Christmas prophecies. Of course, Isaiah 7, 13, and 14 come to mind. And you must, you must acknowledge, you must remember that this was written about 700 years before the enfleshment of Christ, before the incarnation of Christ. Isaiah put pen to page, inspired of the Holy Spirit, and wrote Isaiah 7, 13 through 14, which says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And so a child of the lineage of David, the Christ, the anointed one of God, the anointed heir of the throne. That's what Christ literally means. The anointed one of the house of David. He is going to be born to Israel. The king of kings, not just the king of Israel, but the king of kings will be born of the house of David. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now there's a distinction theologically here that is sometimes missed, the virgin shall conceive. That is not uncommon. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That is the full glory of the miracle. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Some would argue the virgin shall conceive is a common matter because up to that point, that was her state. But here in this prophesied miracle. We have a virgin conceiving and bearing a son, establishing this is a miracle of God. This is a conception of the power of the Holy Spirit, not of natural means. This is the seed of the woman. This is the miracle child. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And those who would deny Christ begin there to assault his virgin conception and birth. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So this virgin born son shall be called Emmanuel, which literally means, Matthew 1, 23, God with us. And that's who he is, Emmanuel, God with us. He is God in flesh. He is the eternal Son of God, the eternally divine Son of God who had perfect fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit for all of eternity, who came into space, time, and matter through the womb of the Virgin Mary. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that is what we celebrate. That is what we sing of, the Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus the Christ coming into the world of the line of David to rule and reign over all mankind. As Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7 adds, Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And so theologically speaking, he is fully and eternally God. He is Emmanuel, God with us, but he is fully man. He is a real child. There's no room for Gnosticism here. He's a real child, fully God, fully man. He took upon himself the additional nature of mankind, coming in the likeness of men, that he might suffer and die in our place. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of the host will perform this. This is not an exposition of Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, which would be glorious. So let us just touch on a few points there. Again, we've already said he is fully man. So he's a child, a real child that is born, natural childbirth, in a stable, laid in a manger. But this child is not just a natural born child. This child who is fully man is also fully God. He is mighty God, mighty God. Now the cults like to say, see, he's mighty God, not almighty God. The thing is that God the Father is also referred to as mighty God in various places. Jesus is mighty God. He also is almighty God. Make no mistake. Don't let the cults slip in there and attempt to confuse you. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the prince of peace. And he will bring peace to the entire cosmos. He'll bring peace to all those who are in him by grace alone, through faith alone. He will bring peace between sinful man and a holy God. And of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule and reign forever and ever and ever and ever. The king of kings, the king of everything. I love to preach him in the heart of Portland, our beloved rebel city. I love to preach the king of Portland, the king of kings, the king of Oregon, the king of the Northwest, the king of the United States, the king of the planet, the king of the cosmos. I love to preach the king of kings, mighty God, fully God, fully man, whose government and peace will know no end. Oh, that we would make peace with this king. His government will know no end. Oh, that we would have peace in our hearts, knowing that our king, the king of kings, government will have no end. Other governments will come. Other governments will go. His government will have no end. And his government will be a government of eternal peace and blessing for his people. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6 is perhaps one of my favorite, if not my most favorite prophecy regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, regarding 
his first advent, his enfleshment, his incarnation. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6, written about 600 years before Christ was born. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6 says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness, literally Yahweh, our righteousness. This king who was to be born of the line of David So he's literally of the earthly line of David. He's a literal human being, a real human being. He's also Yahweh God in flesh. This is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Now, if we're going to speak eschatologically, you might also mention that this king is going to reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. And that's yet to come, which is why I believe in a pre-millennial eschatology. And this king, fully God, fully man, Yahweh in flesh, will rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years over a restored Israel, not just restored as a nation, but restored spiritually unto their Messiah, which is what we find in the final prophecy we'll look at, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, again, about 700 years before the incarnation of Christ, we have Isaiah 53, which I don't have time to deal with it in its entirety, but let us just touch on it. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. When we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. And recall the Lord Jesus, born of Bethlehem, this humble little hamlet, Lord Jesus born in a stable and laid in a manger. He's like a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness when we see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. Israel rejected their Messiah. They rejected their king. They hid their faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Not in a charismatic sense, but in an eternal sense. Because the wage of sin is death. And so all of our diseases, all of our ailments, our failing bodies. That's all a judgment of sin. That's all an effect of sin. And Christ came to conquer sin and death on our behalf, taking that judgment of death on our behalf, shedding his blood on our behalf. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was without sin, the spotless lamb of God. He was without sin, suffered for our sins. The chastisement for our peace. He's the Prince of Peace. The chastisement for our peace was upon him in order that we might have peace with God because God is a just judge that sin had to be paid for. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Again, 
I would love to look at all of Isaiah 53. We don't have time. But verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. The Father made the Son an offering for sin. Now, mind you, the Son came for that purpose willingly, but the Father made his Son an offering for sin. The final high priest and the final offering, Jesus offered himself up because the blood of goats and bulls could not satisfy. He came as our substitutionary atonement to make peace with God is an offering for sin. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. So he who would die will see the labor of his soul. That speaks of his resurrection. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He came for this purpose. He was born that he might suffer, die, and rise again and be satisfied, saving sinners. By this knowledge, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. This is Christmas prophecy. This is what he came for. This is his mission. This is why he was born. This is why he took upon flesh, that his flesh might be pierced for our iniquities. So Christmas prophecies. Believers feast on Christmas prophecies. The heart of him who has understanding seeks Knowledge, the mouth of fools feed on foolishness. We feed on truth. We feed on the glory of Christ. Next, believers feast on Christmas history. It was read before worship this morning, but Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25, believers feed on Christmas history. This is history. It's not a story. It's history. It's reality. Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. It's a miracle of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord to the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, which we read in Isaiah 7, 14. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus, which literally means Savior. Let's unpack Matthew 1, 18 to 25 just a bit. Now, the birth of Jesus was as follows. The first point, that he is virgin born. Mary, betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, was found a child of the Holy Spirit. He's a virgin born child. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man. Here's the honesty of scripture. Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph thought what? That she was un. Faithful. My virgin wife is pregnant. She is not a virgin. She was unfaithful. Therefore, I will put her away privately and move along. And yet an angel of the Lord came to Joseph. Mind you, that is scriptural honesty. This is a real history of a real betrothed young woman and her husband. And If I was telling the story, making up a story, trying to convince the world, Jesus is the Messiah, the virgin-born child, 
I would leave out this little portion, frankly, I would, that Joseph thought she was unfaithful. I'd leave that out. I would write it if I was making it up, right? If it wasn't history, I would say Joseph knew all along. He was on board if I was making it up. But that's what you find all through the scriptures. You find honesty. You find historical integrity like this. And so the angel comes and appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you, marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this was done, that what? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. How is it that prophecy works? God looks down a quarter of time, sees what happens and says, hey, write that down. No, God ordains all that's coming to pass. He works all things according to the counsel of His will, Ephesians 1.11. Therefore, He tells the prophets what His will is, what He has planned, and what's going to come to pass. Therefore, it must come to pass because God's already decreed that it will come to pass. And we find that testimony in Scripture everywhere, but certainly here in the incarnation of Christ, the enfleshment of Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. This is the real history of the real birth of the Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man, Emmanuel, God with us. Believers feast on the Christmas story and they write hymns about it and songs about it and they celebrate it and they they make all sorts of tapestries and artwork all around this glorious Truth of the virgin-born Son. Love came down. Grace came down. Mercy came down. Next, believers feast on Christmas theology. Believers feast on Christmas theology. John 1, 1 through 4. What is Christmas theology? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. This Word is with God and was God. He is distinct from the Father and yet united with the Father. This Word created all things. Nothing without Him was made that was made. This Word, John 1.10, came into the world. He was in the world, the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own did not receive Him. Verse 12, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This Word came into the world, the world that He made, and the world did not know Him. But as many as received Him by the grace of God, to them He gave the right to become children of God. To those who received Him, you and I, by the grace of God. We have the right to become the children of God. We are eternally the children of God through the incarnate Son of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born again from above. Again, as Whitfield's favorite message was, you must be born again. As Jesus came in John 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, so it's not their blood right. It's not that you were a Jew, therefore you're in. It's, it's not of the will of the flesh. It's not your will. Your will is bound in sin, nor the will of man. It's not the will of some priest or your parents or some 
Baptism they did in your infancy, but of God, the will of God. When the will of God moves in his sovereign grace, he regenerates you, brings you from death to life and grants you repentance and faith. Illuminates your heart and mind to his glory, to the sinfulness of sin and the magnificence of Christ, fully God, fully man, crucified, buried and resurrected, ascended at the right hand of the Father as the one mediator. This is the work of God, but of God. The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. He possesses glory. It's innate unto Himself. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He possesses the same glory as that of the Father. They are one in essence. Distinct persons united in essence. One God, three persons. Same glory, same glory, full of grace and truth. And it's this Jesus that we see in John 3.16, as I mentioned some time ago. He is the manifest love of God, sent to save the world. And all those in him are not condemned. All those outside of him are condemned already. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but of everlasting life. Listen to verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He didn't send Christ to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. We feast upon this reality. We delight in this reality. Believers feast on Christmas prophecy. Believers feast on the Christmas story. Real history And believers feast on Christmas theology. Who is this Christ child that was born? We could feast on that further in Scripture. Hebrews chapter 1, if you want more feasting. That's a feast. Colossians has a feast all in itself. Perhaps we'll get that next week. But let us press on. Merry Christmas to believers. To believers. Secondly, Merry Christmas to malnourished and weak believers. So the first point, Merry Christmas to believers in general. The second, Merry Christmas to malnourished and weak believers. Dear, malnourished, weak believer upon Jesus Christ, who yet labors to sincerely and heartily celebrate Christmas, I sincerely wish you a Merry Christmas. And I'm preaching this point that your Christmas might be full on December 25th and every day of the year until you stand before the Lord. Proverbs 15, 13 through 15, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow the spirit is broken. This world, it it clearly, our current circumstances are clearly affecting not just non-believers, but Christians alike. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on Foolishness. All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he was of a merry heart as a continual feast. I want you to have a continual feast, a continual Christmas feast in Christ. A continual feast on God through Christ, the one mediator between God and men. Let us be diligent to check our diet. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Let us be diligent to check our diet. Let us be diligent to be sure that we're not feasting foolishly upon the merriment of the world that will not nourish our hearts 
minds, and souls, and always leaves us sick and unsatisfied in the end, further from Christ, further from genuine merriment that overcomes this sinful world and heals the heart, mind, and soul, further from genuine Christmas merriment that lasts all year and eternity long. Let us be diligent to check our diet. Anyone have a scale you ever check? What are you really checking? You're checking your diet. You're checking how well you're doing. Your calorie burning versus your calorie intake, right? That's what you're checking on that scale. And the scale of our Christmas merriment, the scale of our joy needs to be checked. And if it's off, right? If, if we're feeling flabby on that scale, if, if it's unbalanced, we have a solution. Praise God. We have a solution, So Merry Christmas to malnourished and weak believers. What happens when we're malnourished? We might have plenty of energy. We might have excess energy even. We might be storing it. Or we might be so malnourished, uh, maybe we're going the other direction. We're we're not eating hardly at all. We're starving ourselves and we barely have strength to get up. And it makes us weak. One way or another, it makes us weak. It makes us unhealthy. It makes us ineffective. It affects the merriment. It affects our hearts. And mind you, the devil, saints, the devil roams to and fro, seeking to devour. And one of his chief tools is discouragement. And there's much right now the devil's throwing at you to discourage you. But our merriment does not come through circumstances. Our merry Christmas does not come through circumstances. Our joy does not come through temporal circumstances that will all soon pass away. It's all anchored in eternity. and It's all anchored in eternal truths. It's all anchored in the God of all truth as revealed in holy Scripture, and I want you to have that merriment. I want you to have that joy. Philippians 4, 4 through 9 will teach us how to be merry in the Lord. Our Lord is the only source of eternal merriment and truth. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. How is it that we do that? We can tell ourselves that. Just rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice in the truth. But there's a means, and the means God has given us is His revelation of Himself. How do we know anything of the incarnation of Jesus Christ? You don't know it through a personal revelation. You know it through the revelation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the rest of God's Word. How do you know anything of God? You know it through the Holy Spirit-inspired text that the Holy Spirit illumines unto you. And how do you not forget the things of God? Because hear me, we're all eating every day. We do. At least three meals. Sometimes four. Sometimes five. You count snacks. It's just off the chain. And we're we're Americans, right? We're Americans. We're eating all day. Not just physically. Mentally. And spiritually. We're eating stuff all day. It comes through the windows of our soul. It comes through our ears. And our eyes. And it goes into our hearts. And the lies of the world abound. The the foolish messages of the world abound. They are everywhere. And so we need to, just like in our physical diet, we need to restrict ourselves. We need to discipline ourselves, both on what we take in, right? The calorie intake, on what we put out. We need to work off those calories, if you will. And we do that through prayer and time in the Word of God. The Word is what you eat. Prayer, if you will, is your calorie burning. <laughs> That's your exercising of faith as you seek the Lord in prayer. 
having sought him in scripture, you exercise what you've learned of God in prayer. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Where do you meet the Lord? You meet him in scripture. You see the revelation of him in the word of God. You learn the beginning of the fear of God. You learn then to love God and you can't love a God you don't know. And so you go to the scriptures to know him. The problem is you forget. And even in an earthly sense, all those that you love, you forget stuff about them. You forget because you're so finite. You forget because you're fallen. You forget because you get distracted by other things. But time away from people you love, you forget certain things and you forget even how much you love them. And then you're back around them and you appreciate those things all the more and you remember those things. Sometimes you pull out picture books and remember some of those things you love them for, some of those things you experience with them. But when you're apart, the love tends to wane. When you're together, the love tends to flow. And so we've got to come near to God in the revelation of God, prayerfully searching the scriptures, not just to know stuff about God, but to know God and to love him. And in that you will be merry and that you'll have joy. You're not meant to have joy and merriment. You're not meant to have peace away from God. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, focus on that, whatever things are true. I know one certain source of truth, the God of all truth. Go to his word and he will make you wise actually to discern truth in other realms as well having gone to the God of truth. And outside of the God of truth, we have no path to ultimate truth. So rejoice in the Lord always. Be anxious about nothing. Whatever, verse 8, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue or if there's anything praiseworthy, by the way, you can't know any of that. You can't know any of that unless you go to Scripture. You'll be confused on all of that unless you're regularly in the Word of God and it's renewing your mind. So whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of a good report, if there's any virtue, and if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. Fill your mind with them. Fill your mind with them. We fill our minds with lots of stuff. We do. We drive down the road, we turn on this music, we we drive down the road, we turn on this podcast, we sit at home, we turn on this thing. We fill our minds with lots of stuff. Fill your mind with the truth revealed from God. Now, I'm not a legalist. I'm not saying you can't listen to any secular music. You can't watch any news. There's nothing that you could possibly watch in the realm of entertainment or listen to that wouldn't condemn your soul to hell. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is appetite control, balance, diet. What are you taking in? You can't have the joy the Lord would have for you. You can't have the merriment the Lord would have for you if you're feasting on the world's filth or feasting on the world's, maybe not even filth, just foolishness, just nonsense. Empty calories. You need nutrition. You need spiritual meat and vegetables and potatoes, spinach. You need it desperately in order that you might be merry, truly merry. In Christ, joyful in Christ, at peace in Christ, the Prince of Peace. Meditate on these 
things. Saints, God has given you the treasure trove. Meditate on His truth. He's giving you the treasure trove of His truth. It's a treasure chest. You open it up and there are glorious truths of God in it that will bless you. Open the chest. Memorize the contents. Meditate on them. And the blessings will flow. Verse 9, the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. So meditate on these things, all of God's truth. And then the things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, the Apostle Paul, these do. Imitate the Apostle Paul's life, a gospel-centered life. These do, and the God of peace will be with you. So fill your mind with the truth of God. And the foremost truth of God is Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. And then imitate the Apostle Paul's life, which was a gospel-centered life. These things do, and the God of peace will be with you. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, from childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. This is your profitable food. It brings joy. It brings peace. It brings merriment. It brings a merry Christmas. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so it makes you wise for salvation. It makes you complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. It is profitable because it's theonoustos. It is God-breathed. It's the God-breathed revelation of God. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's preserved. It's authoritative. And it's illuminated by the Spirit that lives within you that you might comprehend and see the glory of God therein and thus rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. First Peter 2, 1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby. Like a newborn babe. A newborn babe with milk grows rapidly. They grow and they grow and they grow. We are to grow in the milk of the word. Matthew 4, 4, Jesus answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Diet. Diet. It matters what we eat. Again, Proverbs 15, 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. The mouth of fools feeds on foolishness. Beware of feeding perpetually on foolishness. Empty calories, or worse, filthy calories. Feast on the word of God. And your joy will be full. You will have a Merry Christmas, December 25th, and all eternity celebrating God's grace to you in Christ Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Now, there are many things that detract and distract. There's television, there are movies, there's music. But in this media-driven age, I warn you, it's just grabbing you, it's pulling you. And its gravitational pull seems to be getting stronger and stronger with each generation. I'm hearing of 50-year-old men, 60-year-old men who are video game addicted. And that's tragic, man, and shameful. Neglecting wives, neglecting your job, the provision for your family, neglecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the provision for souls that are perishing. So you might conquer the world in a video game. As a 60-year-old, 50-year-old, 40-year-old, 30-year-old, 20-year-old man, can we call ourselves men, men? Can we conquer the world digitally while it's perishing spiritually, literally? Paul Washer had a recent quote put out by Jeremiah Cry Ministries, Jeff Rose's ministry. This is Paul Washer 
He says, quote, I see young Christian men in the university who squander away their time playing video games and frequenting malls and movie houses when they should be giving themselves to more noble purposes. You were not bought by the blood of the Lamb in order to give yourself to such things. You have been adopted into a royal family and royal deeds are expected of you. Shun the mindless entertainment of the age and give yourself to the will of God. Now he's pointing directly to young men, but in today's world, I point to all men and women too. Often it's not video games for women, but media. Guard yourselves. You are children of the king. You're citizens of the kingdom to come. Our prayer is thy kingdom come. And we're to be laboring to that end that Christ would rule in every heart. But we labor on so many things that are passing away. Even good things like our home, right? We don't have to have the perfect yard, the most glorious yard in the neighborhood. Idling away our lives on yard care or car care or investment care or the care of anything else in this world that's passing away. We need to be good stewards of the things of this world. But the greatest stewardship is of souls, eternal souls. And the gospel, the treasure of heaven that's been entrusted to us. We are children of the king. We are citizens of the kingdom to come. And our prayer is thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us labor like that. And not squander our lives day by day, hour by hour. Again, I'm not a Puritan. There is time for entertainment, but I would say we need a little revival from our Puritan forefathers who condemned all card playing, all dice, all entertainments, even novel reading as senseless wastes of time. We need to revive a little bit of that because we give ourselves entirely too much to such idle things when there are eternal things afoot. The eternal glory of our King and the salvation of sinners. Merry Christmas to believers. Merry Christmas to weak, malnourished believers. And third and final, Merry Christmas to non-believers. And there may be some amongst us. I don't know your estate ultimately. I don't. I don't know. Merry Christmas to non-believers. Dear non-believer, heavy laden with sin, celebrating Christmas in form, but without power. I sincerely wish you a Merry Christmas. Proverbs 15, 13 through 15, for you. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. And there are non-believers with a merry heart without a care in the world because they don't have a clue. They care only about themselves as long as everything's going fine for them. They have a merry heart. They don't care about eternity. They don't care about their sin. They don't care about the sins of others or their eternity. They don't care about the perishing. And so they have a merry heart. But all that merriment's going to come to an end the day they breathe that last breath tragic, horrible end. Whether you're an outright card-carrying atheist or an undecided agnostic or an undesignated unbelieving Christmas celebrant, I sincerely wish you a Merry Christmas. However, true Christmas spirit and love necessitates that you be warned in your non-Christian celebration of Christmas, whether you call it a human light celebration, winter solstice celebration, a generic happy holiday celebration, or admit that it's really Christmas, everyone is celebrating You've stolen a drop of merriment. Hear me. If you're not a Christian, you've stolen a drop of merriment from an ocean of eternal joy that only awaits believers who are made truly and eternally merry. The repentance of sin and faith in Jesus Christ. As a Christ-rejecting unbeliever, the joy you experience at Christmas does not belong to you. It is stolen. But it is a witness to you 
of a natural revelation of God's amazing grace and love extended to sinners. It's not just Christmas joy that's stolen by non-believers. Every joy is stolen. Every joy. Every sweet morsel of food, every savory morsel of food, every kind touch, every nice word spoken to them, all unmerited. They're sinners. They merit not these kindnesses, but they're all evidences of mercy and love that should compel them if they were in their right minds, but we're not until the grace of God comes and opens our blind eyes, returns reason to us but she can tell us all of these graces and certainly the grace of Christmas, the grace of all these lights and all this song and all this merriment, Costco and the mall and Target, they're full of the name of Jesus right now. The name of Jesus. Talk of sin and death and judgment and the Savior. That's everywhere right now in the Western world. And praise God for it. And there are a multitude of non-Christians out there celebrating, excited about it, buying gifts, hearts filled with love to buy these gifts for their loved ones. And it's sweet. I rejoice in it. And every gift they buy is a picture of what? The greatest gift ever. You didn't pay for it. You didn't work for it. Every gift points to the greatest gift ever. Jesus Christ. The unmerited favor, the unmerited kindness, the unmerited love of God to sinners. Jesus, who took upon flesh that it might be pierced. The babe laid in a manger, a rough wooden manger amongst the animals that he might go to that rough wooden cross to redeem sinners. This is the amazing grace of God. And our atheistic, unbelieving friends, they take a drop of it and they delight in that drop and they miss the ocean. Oh, that they would come to know of the ocean. Oh, that we would tell them of the ocean. Oh, that we would speak to them of their stolen merriment. Even as we heartily wish them a Merry Christmas and mean it, may we warn them that their enjoyment of this will judge them later unless they repent. They must repent and turn to Christ, the only Savior of men. As 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why is Christmas so exciting, so wonderful? Why is it worth lighting up the world, lighting up cities, lighting up cranes in the night? Why is it worth all of this expense, right? Our economy basically goes from the red to the black in a week, certainly in a month. How is that? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The greatest gift ever was given by God to sinners. And the whole world is celebrating. Merry Christmas to non-believers. Oh, wish them a hearty Merry Christmas and give them the glory of Christmas and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're a non-believer here today, I wish you a hearty Merry Christmas and I exhort you, I plead with you, repent, turn from your sin, confess Christ as Lord and be saved, gloriously saved Swim in the ocean of God's love and the merriment that will be forever in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.